HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You've tuned in to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. And today we're going to be talking about farming and waste. I've got a couple of great guests joining us. But before we tuck in, I want to take just a, a brief moment to send... Uh, our condolences on behalf of the network to the Robert Bob Newski family out in Wittenberg, Wisconsin. Um, Robert is one of the brothers who founded and ran the Newski Applewood Smoked Baking Company uh, in Wisconsin, passed away this past Monday. Um, definitely tune in to the homepage of the network to learn a little bit more and hear some reflections from Ari Weinswig of Zingerman's Deli and then Sam Edwards of Edward S. Wallace & Sons as they reflect a little bit on... Bob's place in the smoked bacon space. Today, though, we are going to be chatting with Josh Troyhoft. Josh, welcome to the show. Hi there. Josh is the founder and creative director of Salvage Supper Club. He also is part of the foresight and innovation team at Aroop New York. It's a, it's a design firm that helps make our cities and world more sustainable. We are also in studio with Leah Rutherford of the Queens Country Farm Museum. Leah, welcome to the show. Hi, Erin. So, guys, I want to start with a little bit of um, kind of background information on your work and the and the organizations that you help run. Um, and then in the second half of the show, we're going to kind of tuck into a little bit more of the connection between the ag and the waste conversation. Leah, I think we'll start with you. How did you come to the Queens Farm? Uh, well, I was working in urban agriculture in Detroit. I worked at the Greening of Detroit um, doing some farming and also running um, 
community gardening programs that supported community gardens. And then I moved here in 2009 because my boyfriend had moved here. And so I was just looking to continue my farming career and luckily found the Queens County Farm Museum. So tell us a little bit about the the farm because I think folks might be surprised to know that there's a 47-acre parcel of land within the five boroughs of New York. Um, can you give us a little bit of a history on the farm and kind of take us through what are the types of things that you produce and, and do on the farm? Sure. Um, the farm has been a farm since 1697. Um, it's the longest continually farmed piece of land in the state of New York. Um, it is currently owned by the Parks Department, and our nonprofit, the Queens County Farm Museum, manages it. And it was in 1975 that um, it was the farm was changing ownership and our the head of our board realized that this was really valuable and uh, just that the agricultural history of Queens, making sure that that was remembered, that this was going to be one of the last farms that need to be preserved. Um, and since then, our, our mission has really changed a lot. And in 2008, the agriculture department started, which is what I'm a part of. And we've, um, we're growing diverse vegetables on a small scale, two acres. We also have a small livestock operation on about six acres. Um, and we have, we sell our produce both at a farm stand on site and then also at Union Square. And we've just kind of slowly developed into like a really strong program. That's awesome. So how big is the team? Uh, we have three full-time staff and then four additional um, seasonal staff. So I, I'm definitely familiar with you guys have such a beautiful, uh, beautiful produce, produce uh, Fridays, yeah. right, at the Union Square yeah, exactly. market. I'm like, I, don't, I never, I'm like, I'm there so often. I'm like, which day is which? Um, but Fridays, um, tell us a little bit of like, what are some of the kind of um, things that people can expect to find if they pop over to the stand? Uh, we grow about 40 different crops, and even within that, we grow a huge diversity of varieties. Um, some of our... Big, like our kind of most important crops for us are tomatoes. We grow all heirloom varieties. And we grow about nine different varieties. We have um, kind of a major lettuce production throughout the season, kale, chard, carrots, beets. I mean, it, we really, if it's seasonal here, we probably grow it. Awesome. And you, you did mention that you, you know, you, you work with heirloom varieties. Now, is that part of kind of the, the focus of the work you do because there is this kind of preservation component to it. Is that reflected in the choices you make with the varieties you decide to grow? It is a little bit, like definitely tying back into that history, but then also as production farmers, for some things we make decisions based on... Reality. Reality, disease <laughs> resistance, yeah. um, productivity. You know, we want to have a consistent product for people, so certain things like summer squash or cucumbers, we're, we're picking hybrid varieties. So, Josh, kind of switching switching gears to your work through the Salvage Supper Club, um, I, I know I was, like, perusing uh, the World Wide Web this morning and came across um, a picture of a bunch of folks, fine, you know, actually having, like, a fine dining experience in the middle of a dumpster. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was and what the Salvage Supper Club is, you know, the conception of it and then kind of what's happening with your team these days? Yeah, so um, the Salvage Supper Club actually started as part of my graduate thesis research and work. Um, I was getting a, 
a master's in design for social innovation at the School of Visual Arts here in New York. And I came in with a, a pretty deep interest and excitement in doing something about waste and food waste in cities. And so I was focused on, you know, how do I get people more interested in composting or more aware of the fact that there's all this food going to waste? And, and through that process, one of the sort of design ideas and interventions that I, I worked on, I prototyped, was what if we could create exciting, interesting food experiences for people using food that would go to waste commonly to show people that there's actually this world of food that's still edible and can still be great and try to change attitudes and behaviors uh, around food preparation and consumption. And that was sort of where the genesis of uh, Salvage Supper Club came from. So it started with hosting you know, basically communal table dining experiences, uh, multi-course menus where every course features ingredients that would have gone to waste whether it was in, you know, home kitchens from people I knew or uh, grocery stores or food co-ops or farmers at the farmer's market, things that were still edible but weren't going to be sold or weren't going to be consumed. And since then, it sort of has grown and more people have found about it. And we, as you mentioned, uh, hosted a series of dinners inside of a, a retrofitted uh, 22-foot demolition dumpster uh, with a 16-person communal table made out of salvaged uh, scaffolding planks, which are donated by uh, Build It Green here in New York City, uh, and some nice long benches, and, and sort of created an environment that was uh, an exciting food experience for people that they wanted to be a part of, uh, but was also a way of actually uh, reducing the waste that we create in the city by using stuff that would have commonly been discarded, and then also sort of helping people understand that there is all this food that we could be doing things with, that we could be eating, that we could be making great meals out of, uh, and maybe we should be sort of reconsidering uh, what it is that we are uh, willing and excited about eating. And can you give us a sense? I mean, you know, the, the waste problem in the food kind of supply chain is, is not a small problem. What, what's the kind of like scale or scope of food waste, um, you know, for an average consumer? How should we be thinking about that? Uh, so there are all sorts of numbers and figures uh, that you can find if you quickly Google. Um, but I think sort of on a, on a macro scale in the U.S., uh, the USDA, uh, their average is that we throw away about $165 billion worth of food. And from sort of from uh, production at the farm all the way to uh, the consumer's home, uh, about uh, estimates of about 40% of the food supply, the food that we produce, gets thrown away. Um, I've seen uh, some research that indicates uh, for a family of four, the average family of four throws away roughly $1,500 worth of food in a year. I just, I like, every time I hear those figures, it's like a punch to the gut, especially <laughs> when you like think about them in tandem with the number of people in the United States who are food insecure. Um, yeah. It just, it's like, man, it's, it's not happy stuff. So um, you guys kind of came together around some, Ugly vegetables, if if you will. <laughs> yep. Leah, do you want to talk a little bit about um, when you and Josh met? 
Well, we met at Union Square uh, when we were selling some of our grade B tomatoes that we also call sauce saucers. Um, and like I said, tomatoes are one of our main crops, and we really are trying to sell everything we grow at the farm. So once tomatoes kind of get past that point where they're perfect, we can no longer sell them at full price. So we sell them at half price, and it's just a matter of doing education to our customers about how those can be used and why you would purchase that instead of the grade A. So, Josh, you walk up to the stand, and if you're like me, you see cheap tomatoes, and you're like, yes, this is the move. But you probably also notice that they look a little different. Um, what kind of caused, like, the spark um, in, in the conversation for you? So, um, from the outset, from all, all the dinners that we've been doing, from the very first one, uh, my original strategy was sort of was to go to Union Square and try to find the stuff that farmers had put into a bin underneath the table, the stuff that they they think doesn't look right or that people are definitely not going to buy, or to show up at the end of the day and see the things that were sort of the B team, the stuff that uh, consumers at the market say. Uh, it, it doesn't look right or it, it's not what I'm interested in. And so the farmer is, in that case, either going to compost it or bring it back to the farm or or what have you. And so that's sort of how it started. It started actually looking for the stuff that 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 to me seemed, hey, you could still make something uh, great and tasty out of this, but for whatever reason, people who are here shopping are probably not going to buy it. And I think that that's – I'm – I would say that that's probably a different approach and attitude than uh, the majority of the people who go to the farmer's market, because I think they're probably looking at the exact opposite end of the spectrum in many cases. Yeah, Leah, would you concur? I mean, can you talk a little bit about the the questions you get at the stand when, you know, things are looking? I mean, you guys do, a, I have to say, a, a really great job. You obviously, like, select carefully, and you, your presentation is always, like, full and bountiful and beautiful. Um, but what, what happens like in that, in those moments, like at the table, um, how picky are people? I mean, is it like, is that like 25% of the people are like, eh, can I get a deal on this? Or like, what, what's the kind of lay of the land? Um, it's, it really ranges. I mean, we try to have put out like only the best and most beautiful produce. And I think we do that successfully. So there isn't you're not really seeing that much variability at our table, but you at the same time will find the people that want to look at every head of lettuce and pick out the one that for whatever reason like speaks to them. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of education, like generally if something starts to not look as good for us, it's coming off the table anyway. Um, and we just, we try to explain to people how to take care of their produce when they purchase it. It's something that like, we're always using post-harvest handling practices, and that's the way that we um, keep our produce looking really good. And consumers can do the exact same thing to make sure that their vegetables last as long as possible. And when you are buying from farmer's markets, you're getting stuff that for us was harvested the day before. So just because of that fact, it's going to last so much longer for consumers if they take it home and get it in their refrigerator as soon as possible. And take care of it. Well, I want to kind of, in the second half of the show, take a look back from the back from the farm stand and then with you Josh a look forward from the farm stand but we need to take a, a quick moment for a station break so hang tight we will be right back you're tuned into the farm report
You're listening to Jump Rope by Ginger Lees. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. We are back. You are tuned in to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are talking about food waste and, and agriculture. So, Leah, I want to start at the beginning. There was dark and light. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not that far back. Um, but um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of moments of waste in agriculture production. And, and I want to say, like, when I'm referring to waste here, I'm kind of using air quotes, um, but can you talk a little bit about, like, as we're going through this season, and maybe it'll be helpful to pick a particular crop just to kind of focus ourselves, <clears throat> like, um, what are the spaces where there's kind of culling or things happening sure. um, in between what we see at the table at the market and, and what you're doing at the farm? Yeah, and I guess I would just like to make the distinction that we were growing on two acres really intensively, and we pretty much sell everything we grow and if we don't sell it someone's eating it which is kind of unique for a farm and once you scale up that completely changes and farmers manage like what they're culling or their crops in very different ways Um, but for us we use organic practices and we don't use pesticides so we do have um, we do have a lot of, we have pest pressure and everything we're doing, the cultural practices we're u- using are typically on the front end. You know, we're using, doing a lot of rotation. We're managing our soils. Um, we're growing this diversity. We're picking varieties that work with us, work for us. By front end, you mean we're not trying to correct the problem once the bugs are already there. You're trying to prevent the bugs from kind of wanting to come. That's the focus yep. anyway. Yep, exactly. Okay, cool. We're trying to grow healthy plants that ideally pests will not be attracted to. Um, but there's always a little bit of pest pressure and that's a cultural practice too. being okay with a certain, like integrated pest management is all about assessing where you're at with pests and when does it become a problem that you have to react to versus you can just kind of deal with it where it's at. So something like turnips or radishes will harvest them for a market day and inevitably there are like roots or leaves that aren't up to our standards of something that we are going to sell. Um, but a lot of times those things are still completely edible. And that's when, that's kind of like our first sorting that happens. And those will go into our staff bin, which is also something our volunteers pull from. So that like, generally I would say 75% of that stuff that still can be eaten 
is beaning from like that sorting. But then once that food no longer looks so good, or if it looks really bad when we first harvest it, then it goes to our animals. Um, so we have a small livestock operation. So our chickens, our goats, our sheep, our pigs are getting these seconds as just like an addition. Treats. To, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Treats. Um, and then after that, anything that livestock isn't interested in is then going to our compost pile. Um, so that's like in the kind of harvesting process. One of the things I think is interesting is, is I've, I've read about, and this is, I'm guessing on more, uh, on larger scale farms that often the cost of harvesting certain things is greater than the item you're harvesting. So, um, you either, you know, you go through, you do a first pick, maybe you do a second pick, but you're not going to do a third pick because, I mean, we all know what it's like when you get to the, like the, you pick, you pick like blueberry bush and you're like the last people for the day. Uh, and right. you're just like, oh man, there's like berries here, but it's so much work. Um, how do you deal with kind of that end uh, from the harvesting standpoint of like not leaving things like literally in the field and, mm-hmm. and where is that different for your operation than it might be for something that was on a, a larger scale? Well, first of all, as a nonprofit farm, we're very lucky that we don't have that same um, pressure in terms of making those financial choices, and we also have a lot of volunteer labor. Um, but, you know, something like beets, which is something that Josh and Celia did salvage um, from us, we got to the point where all the beets left in the ground were like this small. and they Like were a quarter size. Tiny, tiny, really well, like f- spaced, something we would never want to sell, and we weren't going to harvest it. And instead, that's something that we would just till back into the ground. Nutrients would kind of be recycled in that way. It just didn't make sense for us to do that labor. But then on larger scale, like I, I went to a on-farm composting workshop this fall and we visited like a 200 acre farm and he had probably an acre in tomatoes that had been harvested many times but they weren't going to be harvested again and it was just these plants laden with fruit that if those were on our farm we would be picking them and selling them but it didn't make sense for him to find the um, the market that would accept like what those tomatoes looked like and I'm it probably wouldn't have worked out for paying for the labor of harvesting them. Right. So it kind of kind of helps, I think, in thinking about the these harvesting practices. Um, all the things that are happening, um, all the selection that's happening before we get to the market table or before we get to the grocery store and why it's so important to have a variety of outlets that can pay a, a workable price to, to harvest these things. Um, and I think, you know, that's interesting where some of the work that you're doing, Josh, comes in is, is looking at, um, you know, celebrating things that we're not used to celebrating. And, you know, I think when you talk about kind of food waste or salvaging food waste, the biggest thing that comes up for folks is often this kind of ick factor. Like, oh, yeah. we're talking about like rotten food or spoiled food. And, um, and that's where people's kind of heads go but that's not really what we're talking about can you maybe take us through um from your perspective some of the different spaces that that we're seeing food waste happen and like what we're getting wrong as consumers when we're kind of thinking about and approaching this um Mm. conversation yeah so I'll, i'll acknowledge at the beginning there certainly are some things 
that nobody wants to or should be eating uh, for a range of reasons, whether it's that it'll make you sick or there's very little that you could do to actually make it palatable. And, and I don't believe that we need to be eating literally all of those things. But there are also, as you mentioned, a lot of things that we could be doing that sort of that are uh, what we as, as eaters desire influences what the grocery stores market, influences what the farmers pick. And so um, the work that we're doing at Salvage Supper Club is partially about trying to excite people and show them some of those things, whether it's uh, a bruised apple or that maybe you're not going to eat raw, but you could definitely make applesauce with. Or uh, I think we're also prone often to sort of judging a fruit or vegetable by its skin or the way it looks on the outside, even though the inside is perfectly good. In some cases, when the outside starts changing, the inside actually gets better. But many chefs would say, you know, if you're going to bake something with banana and you want it to taste a lot like banana, it's better to wait till it turns incredibly brown or almost black. Um, so there are all sorts of things where we could be using the stuff instead of judging it uh, from the outset. And I, I think that that is so that's the place where the most most of us could make big changes, and we're, we're seeing grocery stores in some places starting to celebrate uh, freakish fruits and vegetables, uh, and and I think that that's really interesting, and it will hopefully help us change attitudes around what it is that we desire as people who eat when it comes to the way our food looks. I think, too, it's like there's a little bit of kind of like a radical pushback to the commodification of our food supply when you're thinking about kind of real whole foods versus kind of processed packaged foods. Um, There is a moment to celebrate the variability. But there are real challenges, I think, around... Uh, you know, transport and and sales and selling and like this education process like really um, becomes a big component, which is why I think projects like yours, Josh, are so interesting. Um, Leah, from the farm side, I think another thing that must be a huge part of your work is is planning um, and planning to uh, avoid waste and then kind of problem solving in the moment, like when you have a unexpected bumper crop of something. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how the, the planning process works in in your, like, efforts to reduce waste on the farm? And then what are, what are some of the tools that you look to um, in a problem-solving component when, you know, you're inundated with X, Y, or Z? Sure. Uh, so this is the planning time that we're in the middle of it right now, and we we're like obsessive record keepers. Um, and we have all of our information from our two different markets and we compile it all. And we basically look at what our top 20 crops are. And we also, um, we share a lot of the market duties because that's like another really, really important feedback loop to understand what people are excited about, what's selling well. Um, so I'll be at farm stand. I'll, I'll work farm stand probably about five weeks out of the year. Um, and then I understand that we could grow probably four times as many cucumbers and that would be fine because people are really excited about our cucumbers. Um, and then we'll use that to slightly change our farm plan. Um, and we're lucky because I, we have been farming this 
um, space for six years and we have a very good understanding of our market so it's not changing that much but it'll just be little tweaks to help fill needs and like maybe cut out some things that aren't that important to our plan so like the kale explosion did you guys see the impact of that um do you mean in terms of popularity yeah well it's hard it's hard i've been growing kale for a really long time so i don't know exactly when the kale explosion you're happened. like this is old news for yeah. us <laughs> it um and kale for us it's like you know in that top 20 crops like it is i think initially it was something that people needed some education on like how to work with it but now it's a farm stand staple and so then again on the kind of like problem solving moments uh, where you have a lot or you're at the market and it's getting towards the end of the day i mean obviously then you're looking at more at kind of strategies around like well what, what do we do with what's like real and in front of us well one thing about the way our two markets work is that um whatever doesn't sell at union square and doesn't come out of the cooler and isn't like suffering on the table that goes back to our farm stand. And as we can, that like something we're putting on the table for our Saturday and Sunday farm stand. Um, if we really have a ton of something, then we start calling restaurants. Uh, and even with like Sunday is our last farm stand day. If something, you know, it's still very edible, but doesn't look perfect. We have relationships with certain restaurants who understand that. And for like a cheaper price that they're interested in working with vegetables that are still delicious, but not as beautiful looking. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Josh, I, one of the things that I think is uh, striking um, about the, the work when we're, we're, we're taking it like past the farm stand is you really run, I think, immediately into... Um, Having, needing to have a skill set around cooking, um, being able to understand what to do with the produce, how to use it, um, and how to kind of, to, I don't know, bring it back from the dead, if you will. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about how you see that, that kind of, that skill set building as part of the food waste conversation? Yeah, so I should caveat that by saying I am not a chef in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I'm a designer, so I work with chefs who are great and make really delicious food. But um, if I were the one prepping all of the food, I don't know if it would be where it is today. Who knows? But I can say that I uh, I think one of the goals that we have with Salvage Supper Club is every guest who comes to one of the events gets a set of recipes and techniques when they leave for all, all or most of the stuff that they ate. So for anyone who does cook and is interested in doing those things, there is a, a very strong component of saying you've, through experience, had food tonight that you enjoyed that was made using these types of ingredients, and here is a way uh, for you to remake any of that if, if the food gets to that point or if it's things in your own house or things that you're encountering or maybe you want to talk to the farmers at the farmer's market and see about doing it for the creative challenge on your own side. So so there definitely is a, is a focus on trying to inspire that behavior in people for sure. Uh, and, and I should say I am not uh, a chef, but I cook for myself and it's not actually as hard. I'm sure there are some techniques that the average home cook doesn't do in as uh, successfully or as fancy as a, as a quote-on-blue trained chef can, but 
uh, turning a bruised apple into applesauce or making a jam or a chutney out of some produce that doesn't have the texture that you want or the look that you want but is still perfectly safe and delicious is not uh, that challenging. You just need to have a couple of the tools and and have a few recipes. So I think that maybe we could all find techniques and strategies that are not that far out of our comfort zone or at all out of our comfort zone that are great ways to use a lot of the stuff that we're currently looking past. It's mostly about changing our, our mind about how or if we want to use them. Yeah, And I think, I think that that's one of the places where we we try to play because I think that is it, it, having permission, whether it's from a chef or because you had an experience or because of a friend, sort of seeing that it's it's okay and that there's great food to be made here, I think is definitely a first step. And I think that knowledge is out there. It's just a matter of finding those people. A lot of times it's grandparents or just like a different generation that are used to cooking in that way and are more than willing to share their strategies for like getting the most out of the food that they're buying. Yeah, I think there's a, a long history of that. And um, I, I know when, when I was working in in professional kitchens that like I when I got intimidated by something I remember the first time I like tried to make sausage like a fresh sausage I I was like oh my gosh this is so intense it's so intimidating it's such a big important thing and then I like it's like time out Aaron this is like literally grandmas around the world are doing this like every day it's not a special precious thing it's like a really practical skill set and you know just try and you know what you might like your first batch probably isn't going to be that awesome. But mm-hmm. your first time doing really much is is not usually like a great indicator. Um, and there is, I think, a long culinary history of extending the seasons and using everything. And it's like exciting space, I think, for us as eaters to explore and create new kind of like recipes and textures and, and spaces. And then I think ultimately maybe even save a little bit of money, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are just about out of time. Josh, Leah, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great getting to chat with you today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, to find out more about their work, you can follow Josh on Twitter. He is at the Troyhoff. That's T-R-E-U-H-A-F-T. And to learn more about the work out at the Queens Farm, you can visit them at www.queensfarm.org. They definitely take volunteers and do tours. And like Leah said, they have the farm stand. So uh, plan a little city farm adventure. Get your, get, your, get your booty out to Queens. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. This has been another episode of The Farm Report. If you like what you hear, definitely find us on iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe. You can also listen by visiting the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We've got over 39 great weekly shows. We are a member-supported network, so if you believe in our work, please click that Donate tab and become a member today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.